It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hey again, everybody. This week, it's part one of our two-part conversation with Dwayne Ausherman. Dwayne was on the vanguard of BMW dealerships in the early 70s when the company began expanding and building markets into the West Coast. He later worked with the venerable Craig Vetter on the Mystery Ship program. If you're not familiar with that, you'll hear about it here in a bit. Nearly all of us have referenced Dwayne's website as a trusted source for airhead maintenance and service information. And of course, there's a classic photo many of us have seen with Dwayne, with long hair, a beard, leather jacket rolling around on a slash two VW conversion. I think I asked him about that too. So we've got a lot to dig into with Dwayne Ausherman this week. Before we get started, a reminder, you can reach us directly, airheads247 at hotmail.com. We enjoy hearing from you with your comments, stories, and the like. So please drop us a line. Want to say hello to Peter from Windsor, Canada. He writes to tell us how much he enjoyed our chat with Brooke Reams. And like many of us, Peter was impressed with Brooke's attention to detail and his comprehensive explanations in his YouTube video series. I agree with you 100% there, Peter. Peter also passed along a guest suggestion, something we encourage everyone to do. So again, drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. All right, lots to get into with Dwayne this week. Here's part one of our conversation on the Airhead 247 podcast. Uh, we've got Dwayne uh, Asherman on the line. And Dwayne, I think like a lot of guys who are familiar, familiar with you and your uh, time with BMW motorcycles, that probably comes through accessing your website, uh, W6 rec.com Dwayne's uh, motorcycle bmw motorcycle page uh like a lot of folks out there i've often used it as a reference uh for repairs or maintenance tips or things like that so first off uh thanks for doing that and for keeping it updated um the first thing i want to ask you about and i know we could go into a lot of different topics here uh, but, and we'll touch on some other things, maybe non-motorcycle related. But when I first knew I wanted to speak with you, and as I mentioned, I was familiar with your website, I did an internet search and just typed in your name. And the first, one of the first things that comes up, uh, especially with an image, <clears throat> an image search, is this classic photo of you in a black leather jacket, long hair and a beard. Uh, on a slash on a slash two VW uh, conversion. So let's start there. Uh, tell me about that picture and tell me about that bike. Well, um, I wanted something more than a slash two. And 
that was the second one built. The first one was by a man in Indiana, I believe, and it was back in the day when it, there was an article written in Cycle World about him and his Volkswagen Power BMW. And it just turned out that a couple of days after the article came out, I was going to be in his area. And that was back in the days when you could call up information, give a name, and a city, and they would tell you the phone number of that person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Boy, that's going a, that's going a ways back. <laughs> yes. So I called him up and asked if I could visit, and he said, sure. So he was only an hour away from where I was going to be anyway on some job I had. I don't even remember what it was. So um, I looked at his motorcycle. I, it was just wonderful. It was well done. And he had made extra castings. He had more than just the ones he needed for the conversion. And he sold them to me. And my father was a machinist. So I sent him to my father with all the specifications. My father machined them for me. And that meant I just had to find the Volkswagen engine. And uh, I cut apart a frame, extended it so it had room for the extra two cylinders. And I built the bike. Practically speaking, uh, and I'm sure there were a number of other modifications, and it, it's not as simple as, as you said there, but <clears throat> one thing, I guess, was a, was a, a big uh, consideration there would be getting the driveline uh, hooked up through the transmission and, and into the drive shaft, and, you know, could the, drive sh the stock drive shaft handle that much horsepower? I mean, that was like essentially putting, you know, two... Uh, traditional BMW motorcycle engines <laughs> into one bike. So talk about some of the modifications and considerations that you had to make with that particular conversion. Well, you have to remember that this was more than 50 years ago, so I've forgotten a lot. <laughs> That's but okay, yeah. It, the, uh, the Volkswagen engine did not have more horsepower. Oh, okay, all right. It just had a lot more torque. More torque, okay. So much torque. It had so much torque that you know, I could put the bike into fourth gear, slip the clutch a little bit at an idle, let the engine idle, and I could pull away. Wow. And its top speed was less than a BMW because the Volkswagen engine doesn't turn fast enough. Even though I used the highest ratio to rear end, the 291, I picked that, and in fact, I had a spare because I wanted to, in case something blew up on it. Um, so it, it was a different motorcycle, and it had very good acceleration until the size 5 came out. Sure. And was it, I mean, gosh, you think about just the weight of that engine in the frame, it had to have handled, can, can we say, differently uh, than just a standard slash two? Yes. Well, it had a longer wheelbase because I had to extend the frame to make room for it. So it did handle a bit differently, and it was probably ideal for pulling a sidecar. In fact, that became a popular conversion, and one man ended up making a business out of it. Hmm. You send in your, your size two and he would give it back to you with a Volkswagen engine in it. Yeah. Are that, you aware of that? No, no, I wasn't. Uh and that make and oh, yeah. yeah, and that makes a lot of sense what you say there about uh a sidecar uh conversion as well. 
Um, so interesting. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of what we, uh, well, I guess modern times. I don't know that it's an equivalent, but, you know, you see those, what do they call them, the boss hog motorcycles with the Chevy V8 in it, you know, cramming a, a car engine into a motorcycle frame. Um, but, yes. <laughs> but in that case, uh, you know, it was just, I don't think there was really a transmission or anything. Uh, I don't know much about those boss hogs, but you know, in this, like you say, you still had the standard transmission, uh, from the motorcycle. You know, I'm surprised to hear that, uh, you know, I would have, I just assumed it would have more horsepower and put more stress on the driveline, but I, I, I'm, I guess that wasn't the case, as you say. You could build it up that way. You could put a Porsche engine in it. You could, you could run it up to 200 horsepower easily. I had no interest in that. That's all. Yeah. I left the engine. I did put on 1350 cylinders. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was it's a regular. It had been a 1200, and I went to 1350. So was that bike kind of a daily driver for you? I mean, did it uh, perform well uh, and rather reliable, or how, how did it all work out? Well, that's, that's a strange thing. You see, I built it in Ohio and in Cleveland, and it was getting towards winter, and there wasn't any way I could test it. And I, my family was in, I grew up in the manufacturing business of farm equipment. Well, we knew from experience that anytime you invent a new piece of farm equipment, you have to... You expect it to break. It's going to break, and you have to find out what was wrong and fix it and, re, you know, change the design as much as you need. Well, in the winter in Cleveland, there's no way I could ride it. You know, my intention was to take it to Europe. Well, I couldn't test it, so I moved to California where they had year-round riding, and I could ride it. Well, it turns out that it was... Almost nothing was wrong with it. I, it really didn't break. Wow! I was I was surprised. I just rode it, and being in California with it, that, that's when other BMW riders saw it and began to. That's what put me in the business. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading that um, in the article you uh, recently posted on that. So, practically speaking, then, did you r physically ride the bike uh, out to California? Oh no! Okay, all right. No, I bought a van. I bought a used van. Put my regular BMW in the van, and I towed the, uh, the Volkswagen bike behind it. I see. I see. Now, back. What year was that? I think it was nineteen sixty-seven. Okay, so sixty-eight. Okay, so a young Dwayne uh, is making a cross-country trip with. Uh, Two motorcycles, uh, one in the van, one on a trailer. Uh, did no, you... no, it wasn't on a trailer. It was on a trailer hitch. I made an adapter, so it just it, oh. it on the trailer hitch. Okay, I got you. Yeah, so the I guess the the back wheel was on the on the ground. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Okay, got it. Okay, so I, I disconnected. I disconnected the drive shaft so it wouldn't be turning the. The transmission the whole way. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, all right, so did you have uh, friends, relatives, uh, a loose plan went for going to California, or was it just 
because you wanted a warm place to ride the bike? It was both. I had a bunch of friends from Cleveland who had moved to California, and initially I stayed with them for a few days until I found a place to rent and uh, and reside. And so that's how I got started. And what part? What uh, part of California uh, did you land? San Francisco. Okay. Okay. I was kind of hoping and thought you might say that. Uh, folks of a certain age uh, will remember that was also known as the Summer of Love. Uh, I, I, That's right. Right? Yes. 1967. So you were in the heart of it uh, in San Francisco, Haight-Ashbury, uh, the Grateful Dead, Ken Kesey, I mean, lots of things going on there that had, was it, a, a, was it a culture shock for you? I mean, there, that was a big thing. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, I don't know how exactly how old you were, but younger folks who left the Midwest to go to San Francisco that year. Well, I had virtually nothing to do with them because Number one, I I never drank, drank alcohol. I never took illegal drugs. I've always worked. Um, I'm <laughs> that's, a different person. Yeah, that's a funny, that's a good caveat. Yes, always worked. I like that. So uh, that, that was uh, an oddity, those people, to me. Uh, but still, you were in that in that culture, uh, in the, in the thick of it. What about, I mean, did you, were you a music fan? Did you go, did you see any of the bands or go anything like that, that, that was going on? Or was it, you know, more practically speaking, you've just relocated to the area and it's time to buckle down and, and start making a life out here. Well, I ended up very quickly meeting some people that were instrument BMW people who were important. They had, nice positions and I had free access to one of the anytime I want I was put on the permanent free list for one of the places that had concerts and I remember going to Janis Joplin and watching her yeah but it, it, was, it was I couldn't stay long because I couldn't stand the the cigarette smoke and the and the pot smoke but I, I I was impressed with that woman. I don't know how in the world she stayed alive. She, she <laughs> gave so much of herself that it, it, it was, I, I, that's what, what I remember was how in the world did she even survive because she was so, so involved. Well, it turns out that one of my close friends was dating her roommate and she was, she, her life was a mess. She was a junkie, a heroin addict, and they were just, yeah, so I tried to stay away from all that stuff. I, I, I really, it was hard, but I had to avoid it. Yeah, I was going to say it. There, it had to be a little bit of a challenge because I would imagine, just uh, you know, through meeting people who were a similar age and um, you know background or whatever who were around at that time. Um, there you were weren't you know as you say you know you had a friend or a roommate of a friend or somebody uh who was involved in drugs or alcohol or something like that it was pretty ubiquitous uh out there at the time yes it was it was yes yeah okay so 
that's wow. Okay, that's interesting. So landing out there at that time, uh, you make it out there with the two motorcycles and um, sort of moving along the timeline here, I guess well, what you had mentioned was when you had the VW conversion, a lot of folks started noticing your bike and coming and asking you for help repairing their motorcycles. Is that sort of how you got involved in uh, initially opening uh, Dwayne's motorcycle shop? That's correct. Um, I did a couple of tune-ups on the sidewalk, but that was impossible. So I, I, I had tools with me, some tools, because I moved. I, I mean, I really relocated. Yeah. I, I gave away the place that I was renting back in the Cleveland, and so I moved to California. Well, what I started doing was taking names and addresses and phone numbers because I, I couldn't do a tune-up on the sidewalk. That's just crazy. So uh, the way I ended up finding a place to rent was unusual and different, too, is a bunch of my friends were going to go to the to a special New Year's Eve dance by the Peace and Freedom Party. Well, the Peace and Freedom Party was a whole bunch of socialists, which is not me at all. But I went. Thank goodness I went because it was on the second floor of a large building, and on the first floor was a small uh, little sign saying, Shop for rent. I thought, oh, my gosh. So on, on Monday, I went back to the place, and I saw the shop. It was about 25 feet wide and about 60 feet long, and I rented that, and that's where I opened up my shop. And for quite some time, we all referred to it as Dwayne's shop because I was looking for a name. And finally, someone said, well, what's wrong with Dwayne's shop? And so it became <laughs> Dwayne's shop. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the neighborhood and the area uh, that your that that uh, shop was in. Well, it was on Colton Street, and Colton Street was a dead end street. It started a few blocks away, but after it went past my shop, about another two hundred feet, it there was a right turn. It went about a half a block and made a little short right turn into a dead alley, so you had to turn around and. That turned out to be a problem for several reasons, but um, not exactly for me. But um, there was a uh, I would I would close my shop at six, and I'd be out of there by six thirty. I would go home and eat, and then take a nap for two hours, and I'd often go back to work because then I'd be alone, and I wouldn't have to answer the phone. <laughs> I wouldn't have. Uh, Nobody would disturb me, and I could work until usually until about two in the morning. I go back home and sleep until eight. Well, one night a young woman walks in the shop. I look up and say, "Can I help you?" And she says, "Is it okay if I stand here?" I said, "Sure," um, but of course it was obvious something's really wrong. And eventually I said, "I I think there's a, you have a problem and." If, if you're willing, I said, what's going on? She said, I, would, I, I escaped an attempted rape. And I said, well, we need to call the police. She says, that won't work because it was the police. Oh, good grief. Yes. Wow. So, yes. 
And I wish she'd told me earlier because that policeman was a friend of her father's. He wasn't a policeman. And he was still down there at the other end. If she'd said something right away, it probably wouldn't have been a mistake. I would have pulled my truck out and blocked it, and he'd have been blocked in. Of course, now he's a policeman with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> probably a good thing I didn't do that. Yeah. Boy, what a what a chilling story. So uh, was that indicative? Was that is that story sort of indicative of kind of what the neighborhood was like? Uh, uh, I mean, yes. yes. Oh, okay. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2-Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2-Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2-Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2-Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2Valve.com. And what 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 do you what do you remember about uh, like maybe some of the shops and and restaurants and other uh, businesses that were around there? There weren't any. There there was nothing like that. Huh. It was a block away, at, parallel to Colton Street, was Market, which was the main street going down through San Francisco. Uh huh. But uh, I, I never went over there. I. There was no reason I stayed where I was. But um, in, in terms of Colton Street and the, the first cross street, there was nothing but a few industrial businesses that were never never opened in a way that I can, was concerned with. I never even knew anybody there. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So what kind of, what kind of, was it only BMW repairs you were doing there? And, you know, if so, what, kind of stuff were guys bringing in bikes for and sort of who were what who was your customer uh base who were your clients uh when you first opened well it was only bmw i never have in my life fiddled with anything except bmw yeah. so um i if i wasn't busy i would sometimes i had cards printed and i would ride around town and leave business cards underneath the straps on the on the seats of BMW. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot. I got a lot of business that way, and I didn't realize why there were so many BMWs in San Francisco. It's because it was the offloading place for a huge amount of our military, and they came from all over the Pacific Fleet area, 
and they bought BMWs cheaply in other countries and brought them into San Francisco. Interesting. Interesting. So were they, uh, well, I'll use the term here, modern to the time? Or, so those were, you know, later models slash twos, or were you also seeing, you know, earlier models as well? That was very rare. Um, sometimes I'd see an R67 three or, or two. Mm-hmm. Um, that was unusual, but that's the same engine. It's just had a different frame. And what, so typically, you know, so I know there was any manner of repairs and things I'm sure you had to fix, but, you know, of bikes of that era, uh, what do you recall, you know, being tip, uh, you know, a typical service uh, for somebody who, who would bring a bike in, you know, they had maybe had to have the points changed. Uh, were the bikes at that time, were they high enough miles to have a, a slinger service? You know, what kind, what kind of stuff were you seeing? Okay, I need to tell you something first. Yeah, yeah. I built my my business successfully because I lied to my customers. <laughs> okay. Well, really, I seriously, I told them almost all of them lies, and here's what I I did. Okay. See, before I found a place to rent, I I watched a motorcycle repair hippie place over in Berkeley, and they their attitude was they would help everybody. But all they did was disappoint customers because they didn't really know what they were doing. So what I would do is I would tell my customer, it's going to take me till Friday. They bring it in on Monday. I'll have it ready on Friday, and it's going to cost X amount of dollars. Both of them were lies. <laughs> I, I would have it done on Wednesday for less, for less money. <laughs> That's pretty clever. So they thought I was magic because <laughs> person after person said, I've never had anyone have it, have a bike ready when they said they would, and here you're early. <laughs> and, and I've never had a bill that was less than projected. <laughs> it was always more. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's pretty clever. That's, that's a, that's a so good. I, I was a liar. <laughs> yeah, I was a liar. So yeah, so what what kind of stuff were you seeing service wise on, on the slash twos back then? Almost everything. Yeah. Now the problem was that number one, I didn't know how to rebuild the lower end. Um, I had eventually developed a solution, but I didn't. I didn't have a lot of the natural tools. I had made some of it. I had done a little bit of repair work for friends BMWs back in Cleveland in the good weather. But it was quite limited. I really didn't know what I was doing. And that's why I would go back to work late is because I had a perfectly good BMW and I would take parts off of it to test on a bike that was in for service because that would help me figure out what was wrong with it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, did you have uh, at that time... Had you started to invest maybe in any service manuals or, you know, from BMW, any technical literature or anything like that? No, because it was all worthless. Um, You see, BMW had a repair manual. It was expensive at the time, booklet, softbound, and it it was probably three-eighths of an inch thick. And... What they did was 
they projected what they thought would go wrong. Well, you can't blame them. They're not, they don't know what's going to go wrong. (laughs) They were guessing. And that's reasonable. I mean, they did as well as they could. And I found that a lot of things were breaking. They never expected. And I found some things they thought were going to break that never, never broke. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned points. There was no reason to ever change points on a BMW. They were, they were good. They would outlast the engine. Interesting. So, and where uh, you were getting parts, uh, ordering parts, I assume the distributor, if I'm not mistaken, on the West Coast, was it was it Flanders? Flanders. But wait a minute. I was an outlaw shop. Flanders wasn't going to deal with me. So how were you getting parts? I made friends with well, I did two things. The, the local dealer was only a few blocks away, and they were completely incompetent and crooked. It was half Jones. And so I would often send the owner of the bike over to get parts. He would have to pay for them and everything. Oh, okay. So I, didn't make it, I didn't make any money on parts. But an interesting thing happened. One of the parts people there found me, came over to my shop, and he wanted me to fix something on his BMW. I said, wait a minute, you work for a dealer? He said, nobody there knows anything about BMWs. <laughs> They're completely idiots. And he said, "I will. here's what I will do for you. If your people, if you send somebody over and they ask for me, I will sell them parts at a discount. Ah. And he did. Wow. That's a that's a so, good yeah that's a good setup. Well, he hated the people he worked for. So, so he, was uh, happy to, he was happy to screw him. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. Well, okay, so I'm curious, and I may be way off base with this question, but given the time frame, the part of the country, did you happen to run across uh, Robert Fleischer in those days? This was really before his time. He was later. Okay. And um, I, I would have to think about, I didn't have that question to think about, but um, we saw things pretty much the same way when we finally met years mm-hmm. later. Yeah, okay. So he, uh, you predated him by a few years out there because I know... Uh, when I visited with him, he was kind of he described his job uh, and that may have may have been at a at a different time uh, as sort of a roving uh, troubleshooter for a lot of the dealers uh, back then. And he sort of had the same, I guess you said you guys were sort of of a like mind. He I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I guess I can kind of paraphrase him and say, you know, he was of the same opinion that a lot of the dealers and, and service techs really had no idea. A lot of them really didn't have a strong idea of what they were doing. Well, because they were a BMW shop in the middle of Hondas and Kawasaki's, and was, there were two BMWs over in the corner, and they had them for prestige. They didn't know anything about them. Yeah. The service school, the first service school I went to when I finally became a dealer, was a total waste of our time. I closed the whole shop, took everybody, including the secretary. And 
what they the purpose of it was to convince you that it was possible to repair a BMW. <laughs> oh, good grief! So, so after the after the first one, I resisted. We were required to go once a year. Yeah, I said no, no, I, I'm not going again to that. I, what I want you to do is, I want you to have a special service school just for my shop. Well, it turned out they brought in. Um, and the, uh, the guy down in uh, New Mexico, who was also very good, and only had his people and my people there at their service school, and they happened to have a couple of engineers from the factory, and we didn't even touch a single part. We simply asked questions. Huh, okay. Because they all knew what the parts were. We didn't need it. Yeah. To open up a transmission. There was no reason. We we all knew what was in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how long... Now... Uh, go, go ahead, go ahead. I also had another process. I would buy every wreck I could, BMW. I parted out lots of bikes that were junk, and I would rebuild the transmissions. I would have as many as two dozen rebuilt transmissions waiting for the next year, hmm. the next riding season. We do that in the winter because in the winter, there's not much work. So I ended up with, you could ride your bike into my shop and ride away in less than an hour with a rebuilt transmission. Nobody in the whole United States offered that. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So what was, uh, <clears throat> I'm not... Uh too terribly familiar with slash twos. Uh, I owned one for a short amount of time, but that was about it. What was the problematic nature of those that uh, ca caused you to have that service like that? Well, the slash two, you need to understand its history. It was a 1938 motorcycle. It was designed before the war. And all they did was simply slightly improve it and after the war, Germany was so war-torn and so broke that um, the idea was that you buy a slash two, because remember it had Earl Swartz. You buy a slash two, and you put your girlfriend and your wife on the back. And when the children start arriving, you put a sidecar on it. Now, a sidecar doesn't work with telescopic forks because the dive of the forks causes the whole bike to lean and turn it into a wobble. But with a leading link suspension, the wheelbase stays the same and it doesn't dive and it's far more stable. It's really a sidecar motorcycle. Yeah. So was there extra stress on the transmission uh, when folks would add, maybe add a sidecar or the parts, as you mentioned, were just sort of an archaic uh, design. I, I mean, I just find it a little bit surprising uh, that you would have, you know, that many transmissions in stock and just ready to sw sort of swap out. Well, the transmission in the whole drivetrain, the transmission was by far the, high, the highest failure rate. You were lucky to get... There's another reason for this. You were lucky to get 50,000 miles out of a transmission on a slash two. Hmm. 
And partly that was because the oil was no good. We didn't have good oil back then. The oil today is much better. So bearing failures, uh, gears being chewed up, you know, that kind of stuff? Yes, the input shaft, the first gear after the engine, those would wear, they'd get undercut and make noise, and the undercut would put metal in the oil, and that would help destroy the bearings sooner. Yeah. Do you, rem- do you remember what uh, a tra- what you charged for a transmission swap? So somebody comes in, uh, and in an hour they pull out with the transmission. You keep the core uh, that you pull out of their bike, you put the new one in. Do you remember what that cost back then? Well, it, there was a whole variety of prices because every transmission had different stuff in it. Mm. So w- they were all priced differently. Some were, had all new bearings. Okay. There was no undercut in the gears. There was a top quality transmission all the way down to good but used bearings. It It had multiple less than perfect stuff, and that would be much cheaper. I got it. So, all right, so let's say I pulled in and I wanted, you know, I wanted the top of the line uh, Dwayne rebuilt uh, gearbox. Uh, Do you remember what that would run back then? Yeah, it'd run a couple hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. We would pull yours out and take the cover off to see what the core was worth. I got you. Yeah, it was usually it was usually had some value. That would tend to if it was complete junk, then you had to pay more for the transmission. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I want to ask you about. So, you transitioned from a privateer, uh, running your own, as you sort of call it, it outlaw shop, uh, to one day somebody I. I'm, I probably don't have the story exactly right, and you can clear up here, but somebody actually, you know, approached you about then your reputation uh, had become pretty good around there. Somebody actually, I guess, from BMW or somewhere approached you uh, about becoming a dealer. So how long was it? How long was it? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Earl Flanders was the West Coast distributor for Butler and Smith. They had everything for the Rocky Mountains west to the West Coast for BMW. Okay. And Butler and Smith had it from the Rocky Mountains East. Well, Earl Flanders was an honest person. He was very capable. And one year when the, not a dealer's meeting, but a regular motorcycle convention happened in Los Angeles, I flew down there to meet Earl Flanders. I shook his hand in person. I began asking him questions about certain things related to the BMW that I didn't know, and we developed some kind of friendship. Well, his top, his um, sales manager was named Herman Rydell. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but Herman Rydell was famous. Herman Rydell and his brother had ridden a sidecar BMW in 1938, from the United States down through Mexico, Central America, all the way down to Terra del Fuego, southern tip of South America. And because of this, it was famous. They got 
to be acquainted with the owners of BMW after the war, which is the Quant family, Q-U-A-N-D-T. Quant is a private, did you know BMW is privately owned? No, no, I didn't. Yes, it's it's the largest vehicle manufacturer in the world that's privately owned. You can't buy stock in BMW. There isn't any. Now, I, I had no idea. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America. And thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. So anyway, Herman Rydell, I, I called him. I had him come to, I, I had told Earl Flanders, I called up and I said, I want you to, you know, I'd like to, to meet your your salesperson, which his name, Herman Ardell. Of course, I had no idea how, how famous he was. He was connected directly. I mean, when I say directly, I mean by phone calls to the Quant family. So Herman Rydell came to my store and saw nothing but BMWs, and he was quite impressed. And he's the one who helped me get the franchise in 1971 for the size five. It was out in Marin County, and Marin County was just over the Golden Gate Bridge north of it, and it was the third richest county in the United States. So that store opened up. Um, in the first full year, which was 1972 of operation, that's when they awarded me the Model Dealership Award. Have you seen that on my website? I have, and that's pretty impressive. Well, there were 225 dealers in the United States. Yeah. Everybody was in shock because they'd never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. It had never been it had never before been issued, and it never again was. I was as surprised as everybody else. It wasn't until in the last 10 years that I found out what happened. A call was made back to the Quant family 
And they made someone told them it was Herman Rydell told them you cannot be successful in the United States with BMW motorcycles unless you are operating like Dwayne Osherman does. Wow. That's high praise. Well, yes. But that's because that was my passion. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't doing it because I wanted to get rich. I just loved it. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the the sort of uh, nuts and bolts process uh, of becoming a dealer back then. I know it was probably a lot less paperwork, uh, sort of protocol and rules and regulations to follow than than what we know a BMW motorcycle dealer today. Um, but I don't want to oversimplify it as saying maybe it was just a, you know a handshake and and you know good luck. But uh, I, I imagine getting that set up uh, was a little bit different than what dealers do today. What was sort of the the process and uh, then as I sort of alluded to the nuts and bolts of making all that happen? Well, there was something called a new dealership package. If you were a new BMW dealer, you had to buy certain parts, certain tools, etc. Well, I said, wait a minute. I have more parts and better parts than come in your package. I said, in addition, I have almost all of the tools, but I've made my own, and they're better than the mattress tools that you offer. <laughs> so, they, so they pulled out of the dealer package the main thing I got was the sign, the big sign that <laughs> you put up front, yeah. the four-foot diameter sign. And I did get certain things. There were some things I didn't want, and I, I, I took those and paid for them. So I paid a lot less because I, I already had it. And did they have um, requirements as far as how many new bikes uh, that you had to buy? Was there a, a, a protocol on that? Yes, there was. You had to buy two new bikes. And because I knew this was happening, <laughs> I pulled the tricky one on them. I had several customers that were interested in new bikes, and I approached them. I said, listen, here's what I'm willing to do for you. If you will front me the money, I will sell you a brand-new BMW, and we'll split the profit. You're going to get it at a big discount. I'll make a few dollars on it. And what this allows me to do is when they come to me and say that they really want me to buy two bikes, I, I instead said, is it okay if I buy five? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So you're doing some, some pre-sales on, on the front end. That is tricky. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So we all profited by me exceeding their requirement. Wow. That's pretty clever. Uh, so you, as you mentioned... Uh, you became a dealer, I guess, right uh, sh there shortly, if you, if you said 1971 or thereabouts. So that was just after at the Slash 5 was freshly uh, introduced yes. uh, to the U.S. market uh, and the world, for that matter. So tell me, what were your impressions, having been on Slash 2s all those years, what were your initial impressions of the Slash 5 when they started showing up? Well, people started bringing me, even in my old shop before I had the franchise, they started bringing me this 1970 models. It was a total disaster. It had all kinds of problems. The thing was just, it, it was 
you never want to own a 1970 BMW <laughs> okay. unless it's been reworked considerably. So I at first was pretty turned off to the bike because it was just, oh my God, they just, you couldn't get them to idle. The carburetors didn't work right. It's on and on and on because they didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. They, they really screwed up. So um, it took a while before I began to see that the promise was there. It really was going to be a very good motorcycle. And that short wheelbase made them handle extremely well when the forks were fixed. The forks were a major. That's why they were wobbling. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've interviewed a few folks who uh, also were uh, involved uh, as either a dealer or mechanics or stuff, things like that, when the Slash 5 was first introduced. And that was uh, one of the things I've heard was really problematic about those bikes uh, right out of the gate was the carburetors. Yes, um, they, they screwed up. Yeah. And, um, you, and you mentioned... There was a... Go ahead. Yeah, there was a way to fix the carburetors, but we didn't discover it for a year or two. It didn't fix them totally, but it made them far better. You could adjust them. So you had two different ones. You had the uh, CV bang and then also the slide type. So both of those equally problematic, I guess, in their own unique ways? No, no. The slide carburetors were fine. It oh. was the, the CV carbs that were screwed up. And what was the, what was the issue? How did you eventually solve that? We had to lift, if I remember correctly, and here I didn't research this, so I'm going by memory. We had to lift the slide so it wouldn't go down as far. Um, I think that was the fix. Yeah. I think we put a screw in the bottom so it wouldn't drop as far. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's that's a pretty practical way to take care of that. Uh, you mentioned also then there the the forks, the front suspension setup, and uh, the quote unquote wobble. Yes. That uh, of course yes. everybody you know who's familiar with the Slash Five series knows about the short wheelbase and then the long wheelbase uh, that later came out in 1973. Uh, there's always the famous front end wobble, the tank slapper, and I know you've written about this extensively on your website. Um, so what your sort of contention on the front end wobble, at least prior to the long wheelbase models was, if I'm not mistaken, you're saying just the front end suspension wasn't set up correctly. Were there stiction issues? What was going on there? All of that. Yeah. Even worse. When I went, I, I began fixing them because I, I had made friends with Roy Reynolds in Salt Lake City, Utah, who was, a Mormon, but he, we're still friends today. He's not dead yet. So um, he figured it out. He gave me the clues to what, it, what the problem was. And so I began fixing them. And I even told, by this time, Flanders was out of the picture. Butler said they'd taken over the West Coast. And I called them up and told them why they were wobbling. And they said, they're not wobbling. There's no problem. They didn't listen to me. But privately, they knew I was fixing them. And they actually had Roger Selby, the dealer in Redwood City, who had a wobble, a bike. And 
they called and asked me if I would fix it. I said, I'll fix it under one condition. You have the owner bring it to me directly, not Roger Selby. Roger Selby was an honest man. He was a good, honest dealer, but he just didn't understand. He had other motorcycles, not just BMW. So the owner brought it to me. We fixed it so it didn't wobble. And um, BMW Butler said had to do something for they, they They gave me something. I don't remember what it was. It, it's gone, but we fixed it for them. And when they asked me to fix it, I said, wait a minute. You told me they don't wobble. How can I fix something that doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they hated me because I knew more than they did about many of these things. And I was very vocal about it. I did not keep my mouth shut at all. So I was a pain in their butt. <laughs> well, um, well, that's good. I mean, it's somebody... You know, somebody has to speak up for the consumer uh, in this regard. I mean, uh, you know, people who are buying the bikes, you know, didn't have the insight and knowledge you did. So, uh, you know, you obviously you were doing the right thing. Yes. Now, did I did I write up on my website? I don't remember the whole thing about going to the factory. No, not that I can recall. Oh, oh, this is interesting. Okay. One one winter, I had a mechanic. I had mechanics, so they ran the shop. And I and I flew to Germany in the winter because there was less work to do, and they could easily. I had good mechanics; they could live without me easily. So I went. Oh, let me back up. Okay. The man the man in charge of all BMW motorcycles. His name was Horst. Yes, I've seen that name, yeah. He came to the United States to look over the dealerships. When he got to the West Coast, Butler and Smith tried to skip Dave Golden. They they wanted to take him straight to my shop to impress him. He said, no, he says, I want to go to Dave Golden and see what's going on there. And when he came to my shop an hour later, two hours, whatever, he said, it's the same piss spot it was a few years ago when I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> so he was very pleased with the, with the things that he saw. And he said, listen, here's my card. If you come to Germany again and I invite you, we will run, unroll the red carpet. You will get the best treatment you ever have. And he did that. He was good for his word because I, I took that invitation and I went to Germany that winter and they took me through the production line. So this and was said, this was the winter of 71, 72? I think it was the winter of 72. Okay. But I could be wrong. Probably 72. Anyway, so they informed me an English-speaking engineer and somebody else took me through the production line, and I got to watch every step in the production of the BMW. Wow. And they said, if you have questions, we are even willing to stop the production line for you. Holy smoke. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. So, So that took all morning, and we went to lunch, and then, the lunch was a social event and just 
pleasant. It was very little business. Afterwards, they sat me down with three engineers. Two spoke English and one spoke only German. And one of the English engineers said, we understand that you have figured out how to fix the wobble. He said, my own personal BMW, an R60 size wobbles so badly, I cannot ride it. This thing is a killer. And he said, nobody here can fix it. And I'm thinking, holy smoke. I, I went to the factory to learn, and here I am. I'm supposed to teach them. <laughs> That's amazing. So I said, I can show you where the problem is. We went back to the production line, and we went to the point where they put the forks on. What they did, now the forks were made by the see, BMW doesn't make anything. They buy all of it from manufacturers that are contracted to produce different parts. And the fork was the same one that had been on the Mako dirt bike. And all they did was change the the lettering instead of saying Mako on the lower leg, the casting, it said BMW. Yeah, they just yeah, just stamped well, the logo on there or something, right? Right. So when they opened the box, it was a, a wooden box, and they lifted the forks out. They didn't test them. They didn't check them. They slapped them on the motorcycle directly. And I said, I can tell you, the forks are mismanufactured. They can't work. They don't work. And I explained in great detail how much trouble I went to to fix them. Their specification, the factory spec, was they had to be parallel within 0.1 millimeter, which is four thousandths of an inch, and they had to be flat, if you put a glass plate on, within four thousandths of an inch. Well, they were way more than that, right out of the box. Hmm. So they were going to wobble. And the word had come to them that I was fixing them. Not through Butler and Smith, because they wouldn't admit that. I don't. I found out later it was all through Herman Rydell and his connection with the factory that they found this out, and so I explained the trouble. Oh, in 1972, I recalled every single BMW I sold and every one from a good customer that we worked on, and we fixed the forks on all of them free. And, and what was what what was the repair? We had to hog out the top plate because the holes were in the wrong place. <laughs> mm. So then, that made it impossible to get them parallel within specifications. Right. Yeah. Right. Then, that's not all, the lower yoke that holds the forks themselves, it clamps around them. They were built so that if you took everything apart, but you just had the forks tubes held in by those, they weren't flat. Oh. So what I would do is I would put a board in to twist it the correct direction, and I would tie it in place for a couple of days. Yes. And that would that would tweak it, but it, we, would, we wanted to over-tweak it because... 
it would go back easily. And so then we would we could easily pull it back and put it all together, and they stayed. They stayed for. We took them down to zero thousands of out of parallel and zero thousands out of flat. And that is still the sort of gold standard of setting up uh, BMW forks uh, today for folks who really want to get into uh, the the fine detail and do that correctly. I've seen any number of. Uh, you know, website write-ups and photos and things like that. Uh, and that's the exact uh, procedure that uh, people still use today. Well, we did it back then when yeah. there was no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And so, so well, go go ahead and continue. So at, the, at, the, at the factory, when we went out and I showed them that they weren't testing the forks and they couldn't possibly work because they were made wrong, they explained that they didn't have time on the production line because each step on the production line was less than a minute. And that the solution for them was to extend the swing arm, to what? lengthen the wheelbase. Wow. Now, what that did is to make the bike handle very slowly. It was no longer one you could flick through the corners easily. But it... 90% fixed the wobble. Hmm. And even if they even if they did have minor wobble, you could easily get it out of the wobble. So effectively they sort of fixed it. If you remember, in late 73, they just welded a chunk, a two-inch chunk into the <laughs> swing arm. Yeah, that's right. And when 74 came out, the swing arms were made longer. They were correct. Yeah, I had a slash five uh, seven fifty with the the welded on chunk. Sure did. Yes, exactly. That's I caused that. <laughs> that is that is uh, as Paul Harvey used to say. The rest of the story, there, Dwayne. That that's yes. that, that is fabulous. And as I mentioned, as I mentioned, um, <clears throat> your website, which we'll be sure to link. Uh, in the podcast here, uh, W6REC, uh, if I recall, you've got, uh, there's also some additional write-ups and I think some procedures uh, that you discuss on that for folks who want to dig into it a little bit deeper. Um, thanks to Dwayne for joining us. A link to his website posted in the About section of this program. More with Dwayne next week in part two of our chat. As always, thanks for joining us. We look forward to being with you again soon. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.